having come to worship God and believing that Jesus is here with us. So let us pray together. Wonderful God, it is good to be together today, to know that we are welcomed by you and that you love us just as we are. We thank you for the gift of belonging, for the families into which we were born and by whom we were cared for, for the friendships that have enriched our lives for the special relationships that have allowed greater intimacy, for the societies and clubs that have brought us pleasure, for the communities and nations of which we are a part, for the church in which our faith has been nurtured and sustained. We thank you for the mystery of believing, for the natural spirituality and insights of little children, for the certainty and energetic conviction of youth, for the wrestling and questioning of middle years, for the faithful hoping and quiet trust of older years, for the church in its diversity, telling the story and bearing the truth from one generation to another. We thank you for the challenge of behaving, for the opportunities to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with you, for the complexity of discerning right from wrong, compromise from collusion, for the freedom to choose and the possibility of forgiveness when we fail. For the privilege of being part of the church, modelling love, forgiveness, community and hope. Wonderful God, in whom we glimpse perfect relationship, in whom our faith finds its fulfilment in whom love, justice and mercy are complete. Accept our prayers, offered in the name of Jesus. Amen. Our first reading is from the book of Acts at chapter 2, reading at verse 44, and that's on page 150 in the Church Bible. All the believers continued together in close fellowship and shared their belongings with one another. They would sell their property and possessions and distribute the money among all according to what each one needed. Day after day they met as a group in the temple and they had their meals together in their homes, eating with glad and humble hearts, praising God and enjoying the goodwill of the people. And in Galatians, at chapter 5 and verse 14, it's page 238 in the Church Bible, we read, For the whole law is summed up in one commandment, love your neighbor as you love yourself. 
But if you act like wild animals, hurting and harming each other, then watch out or you will completely destroy one another. What I say is this, let the spirit direct your lives and you will not satisfy the desires of the human nature. For what our human nature wants is opposed to what the spirit wants and what the spirit wants is opposed to what our human nature wants. These two are enemies. And this means that you cannot do what you want to do. If the spirit leads you, then you're not subject to the law. What human nature does is quite plain. It shows itself in immoral, filthy, and indecent actions, in worship of idols and witchcraft. People become enemies and they fight. They become jealous, angry, and ambitious. They separate into parties and groups. They're envious, get drunk, have orgies, and do other things like these. I warn you now, as I have before, those who do these things will not possess the kingdom of God. But the Spirit produces love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, humility, and self-control. There is no law against such things as these. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have put to death their human nature with all its passions and desires. The Spirit has given us life. He must also control our lives. We must not be proud or irritate one another or be jealous of one another. My brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in any kind of wrongdoing, those of you who are spiritual should set him right, but you must do it in a gentle way and keep an eye on yourselves so that you will not be tempted too. Help to carry one another's burdens, and in this way you will obey the law of Christ. If someone thinks he or she is somebody when really they're nobody, they're only deceiving themselves. You should each judge your own conduct. If it's good, then you can be proud of what you yourself have done without having to compare it with what someone else has done. For we, each of us, have our own load to carry. Those who are being taught the Christian message should share all the good things they have with their teachers. Do not deceive yourselves. No one makes a fool of God. People will reap exactly what they sow. If they sow in the field of their natural desires, from it they will gather the harvest of death. If they sow in the field of the Spirit... From the Spirit, they will gather the harvest of eternal life. So let us not become tired of doing good, for if we do not give up, the time will come when we will reap the harvest. So then, as often as we have the chance, we should do good to everyone, and especially to those who belong to our family in the faith. Amen. If you've looked at your service sheets, you'll know that the special offers continue this week. Last week you got four. This week it's down to two, but you're still getting two rather than one. We're looking at the general theme of membership this morning. And one of the more weird things that churches of all denominations and traditions do is to collect statistics. I haven't yet learned what the Church of Scotland does. But the Church of England records how many people attend communion services 
at Christmas and Easter. The Methodist Church, in I think it's October, has a census Sunday when every congregation reports how many people were present. And I can recall being at a Churches Together United service on Census Sunday in the Methodist Church in Hugglescote, and they rubbed their hands together in glee because they got 15 Baptists to add to their figures. Baptist churches each year report the number of members on the roll, along with an explanation of the changes and why they've occurred. What is this obsession with numbers? What's it all about? I think it's a desire to see how big or small our churches are. And from that, some, I would suggest, perhaps misguided attempt to comment on the well-being of the church. Statistics are useful, but they're only ever part of the story. Perhaps it's as well Stephen's not here today to, to talk about statistics. It's what I used to do for a living as well. They are useful, but they are only ever part of the story. We do as well to ask what we do with this data and why we collect it as we do to actually look at the numbers. But why is it that Baptists, along with many other Protestant nonconformists, keep a formal membership list which may have very little resemblance to the people who are present on a Sunday? Some churches have a much bigger list of members than the number of people who are present on a Sunday. Some, like us, have a smaller list than the number who are typically present. What's that all about? So why membership and why this specific kind of membership? People who come into Baptist churches from other traditions quite often ask that because they find it a bit bewildering, a bit confusing. For those who have always been in Baptist churches or churches with that kind of structure, the question often doesn't get asked. It's just the way it is. Well, in one service, I can't cover all the whys and wherefores of the different approaches, but we are going to spend a little bit of time this morning thinking fairly generally about membership and then a bit more in detail about what it might mean in a Baptist context. So we start with a bit of a history lesson, I'm afraid. For many centuries, the only form of Christianity in Western Europe was Roman Catholicism, something that dated back to the latter part of the Roman Empire and brought with it a very complicated blend of politics and religion, large chunks of which actually survived intact until comparatively recently. The parish system divided up countries into manageable chunks and bishops and priests were appointed to oversee them. Our history tells us of absentee clergy, of corruption and exploitation. And yet, here's the mystery. Through all that, there remained enough people of integrity who were committed to pass on the gospel to new generations. The stories of Jesus, the truth of our faith, was passed on despite the mess that was made. One important aspect of the parish system and the prevailing theology of the medieval period was that people who were baptised as infants were considered part of the church, irrespective of whether they believed anything 
understood what they heard on a Sunday, and they probably didn't because most of it was in Latin, or the way that they behaved. And it was against this background that stirrings of the Reformation began, various Reformations in different places at different times. The Reformers were totally committed to the church, the people of God. But what they saw in the institutional church was something that was corrupt, and often in their view, irredeemably corrupt. It was beyond fixing. Some of them got themselves thrown out for what they said. Others chose to leave. But they continued to meet together for worship on a Sunday, sometimes in houses, sometimes in forests, sometimes in other places. And they began to see themselves as the true church. These were the people who carried the gospel forward. And it was in that context that membership as Baptists understand it began to emerge. Mere church attendance did not a Christian make, they said. You needed to believe. You needed to show in your life, in the way that you lived, that there was something actually going on. This was more than just a label you chose for yourself. And so there emerged a connection between believing and behaving, and belonging, which has shaped understanding of church pretty much since. It's only recently that people have started to question this paradigm of believing, and then belonging, and then behaving within, sorry, believing, then behaving, then belonging in uh, Baptist churches and Protestant nonconformist churches. If you look around your average Baptist church nowadays, it will be smaller than it was 10 years ago, at least in terms of the number on the formal membership roll. But it might be that in real terms, it's bigger. There are some Baptist churches that have massive congregations every Sunday, but their formal membership remains quite small. What's that all about? Why is it that lots of people come to church very faithfully, Why is it that lots of people even make that declaration of faith through believers' baptism, but never actually make the commitment to be church members? I think there are lots of reasons. I don't like to harp on about my old church, but I know them probably the best of any church I've been. I had a lot of people who'd been going there for decades who were not church members. I even had one lady who this year will be... 99, and she'd been going there since she was a baby, and she was not a member. People gave me all sorts of different reasons. One person said, I was confirmed in the Church of England when I was 12. I don't need to be a member. Another person said, I I cannot be bothered with all those boring church meetings. Another said, no one asked me to join in the first six months, so I'm not going to now. Somebody else said, I don't think I'm good enough. So did those people belong to that church? And at one level, the answer is very clearly, yes, they did. They were there before I went there, and they are all still there now. But at another level, no, they didn't. 
because they chose not to accept the responsibilities or the privileges of membership. They were happy with what I would call a consumer version of Christianity that was really about what it was in it for them. They came to get what they wanted, and then they went off home again. Perhaps that sounds a bit mean, a bit harsh. But I was reminded of the words of St. Cyprian, one of the earliest Christian theologians, who said, they cannot have God as their father, who did not have the church as their mother. Now, quite what he meant by that has occupied several very clever people for centuries. But I think one of the things implicit in that is that being a Christian, having God as your father, without being incorporated into the church, having her as your mother, is actually impossible. It's, it's a nonsense. If we are Christians, we must be part of the church. We have to accept the responsibilities as well as the privileges. We're going to go back to that in a Baptist context in a few minutes. But I just want to go back to this threefold thing about believing, behaving, and belonging, which is on one of the nice sheets I've given you. I'm making you work hard at the moment, I know. I'm not going to talk through it. I'm not going to explain it particularly. But there was a traditional pattern that said, a person learns about Christianity and believes it to be true. And that shows in their lifestyle. And then they are judged suitable to be invited into membership. A lot of postmodern thinkers say, that's no good. If you wait for people to believe the right things and behave the right way, whatever that means, you'll be waiting forever. Actually, what we should be doing is welcoming people as they are in the messiness and the muddle of their broken lives, with the big questions they bring and the strange ideas they may have. And as they find welcome, as they begin to see how the gospel makes sense, then they begin to believe. And just maybe, aspects of their lifestyle will be transformed. My own opinion, for what it's worth, is it's too simple to say it's an either or, either one or the other. I think it's um, more of a mixture. And I think there are at least two ways we can understand belonging in the church. And there are two ways of belonging in our church, both of which are important. Firstly, there is the open-handed welcome that says to anybody, come and share our life of faith. Come and get to know us. Come and be among us. Come and worship with us. Come and laugh with us. Come and drink tea and coffee with us. Come and journey with us. And then there is the more intentional level of belonging. Formal church membership. And that's what we're going to look at in a few minutes. This intentional church membership that says, I am committed to this community in this place with its responsibilities as well as its privilege. My suspicion is that if we are like any other church I've ever known, there are lots of people who are happy with the first level of belonging. It takes a bit more to get to the second level of belonging. 
One of the oldest and best-loved definitions of a Baptist church is as a covenant community of baptized believers. A covenant community of baptized believers. An understanding that goes back to our 17th century roots. The earliest covenants go back to the early 1600s. And there is one from 1606 or thereabouts, which was made in Lincolnshire by, I think, Thomas Helwys and his congregation. That may have been John Smith and his, because I always get the two of them mixed up. But they would covenant together to walk together in Christ's ways, known and to be made known, and to watch over one another. To walk together in Christ's ways, known and unknown, and to watch over one another. This same understanding of what a church is and how its life should be ordered is expressed in the covenant we made together last autumn, and I printed out copies of it for you to remember what it was that we promised to each other because they were serious promises that we made, me to you, you to me, us together before God. The two covenants, the 1606 covenant and the 2009 Hillhead Baptist Church covenant, are rooted in the kind of passages we heard from Acts and Galatians that talk of an intentional community, a community that involves everybody taking a share in responsibility for the well-being of the whole. It shouldn't surprise us that these threads of belonging and believing and behaving are part of the covenant commitment. What does it mean for us to be a Baptist church? To be a covenant community composed of those who are or who may be on their way towards becoming baptised believers. In the short passage from Acts, we heard a little bit about what life was like for a church just after Pentecost. Probably a relatively small church, not more than around about 100 people. We might not choose to do everything that they did, but there is clearly a sense of an intentional community of faith, a covenanted membership church. And the glimpse we get of this church shows a commitment that goes far beyond meeting together for an hour on a Sunday morning and having a few dreaded church meetings. The people in that church would have met together in their homes to share meals. It's a way in which the Good News translation is particularly helpful. They ate together. They did normal things together. They would talk together about perhaps matters of faith, about matters of justice, who knows? And they would pray together. They took part in public worship, still at that stage in the temple, within the concepts of Judaism, and they looked out for each other's practical needs. If somebody needed something, somebody else who had it would help them out. This was anything but a consumer view of Christianity, that I just come and I do what I want and I get a blessing and I go home. 
It wasn't even the voluntary society model, the kind of club idea, that kind of influenced Victorian Baptist churches especially. It was a much deeper commitment to one another, and it was demanding, and it was rewarding. Mutual accountability, walking together and watching over one another, is an underlying thread of the Galatians passage too. It would be too easy to get hung up on those lists of bad things to do and good attitudes to have. You look at those lists and there are two things that happen to you. Either you think, oh no, I'm terrible. Or you think, well that's all somebody else, I'm perfect, I don't do any of those things. If you really look at them carefully, we're probably all of us a mixture of good and not so good. But what we actually see in that passage, and it was quite a long passage, is that believing and belonging and behaving are held together within the mutuality of a covenant. Carry one another's burdens, we're told. And in fact, we just sang about in that hymn. Gently restore those who fail. I think the churches could do with reading that one. Gently restore those who fail, which is all of us sometimes. Be aware of your own vulnerability to temptation. This community should be a place where it is safe to admit to our struggles and our questions. A place where actually we ought to be able to say that we mess up knowing we won't be shown the door, but that people will work with us and walk with us. It should be a community that stands by its members, a community that sees the good of the whole as important, even where that might override the wishes of the individual. And that's not easy, is it? Sometimes we all want to get our own way. But actually, this commitment to the community is more important than getting our own way. Formal membership of a Baptist church is not about the right to vote on decisions at church meetings, though it involves that responsibility. It's about a relationship, a relationship that we enter into voluntary that basically says, I'll look out for you, and will you please look out for me? I might need your help sometimes. And when you need mine, I'll be there for you. And that is a real privilege to be invited to share in each other's lives to that level. But it's also a responsibility because it takes time. It means we have to build up trust. It means we have to allow ourselves to be a bit vulnerable Vulnerable to being hurt or taken for granted. Vulnerable to making mistakes. Vulnerable to the risk of taking risks. And yet, if we're totally honest with ourselves, we know that the deepest fulfilment we find is in relationships where we can be vulnerable, where we can take risks where we can admit our struggles and our difficulties. The most beautiful marriages are those where people are able to retain 
that level of communication and openness. And the most healthy churches are those which are on the journey to doing that. Perhaps each one of us, whether we are as yet formally a membership of this church or not, would do well to pause for a moment and reflect on the covenants that we have made one with another before God to walk together and to watch over one another as we continue our journey in the footsteps of Jesus. Today we bring ourselves and the gifts we have and we covenant to serve and encourage this church and community to respect and care for each other, to take responsibility for the people we are and the people we hope to be in Christ, to encourage one another as we make our journey together. We take a moment of silence to ponder those words and consider our personal response. As people who belong in some way to this community of faith, One of our privileges, one of our responsibilities is to bring to God our prayers for others. So we bring them now. Let's pray together. Loving God, we speak so easily of belonging or of being a community. (coughs) And yet we know that for many people these are at best empty words and at worst, ideas filled with dread. We pray for people whose homes are places of fear, for children who wake each morning to criticism and cruel words, for women and men who cover their bruises and mask their fear with talk of door frames. For those who dread the nighttime visitors who will steal their innocence. God of justice, through hands like ours, bring freedom and hope to those trapped in cycles of abuse. We pray for those who flee their homes because of fear for refugees and seekers of sanctuary, ousted by violence or persecuted for their beliefs, for bewildered children arriving in lands that do not want them, where people speak languages they cannot understand, for desperate families sacrificing everything and risking their lives on leaky boats to seek a fresh start, and freedom from fear. God of justice, 
through hands like ours, bring freedom and hope to all enslaved by intolerance. We pray for those for whom friendship is rare. For those who have been hurt so many times, they will no longer risk rejection. For those who lack social skills or feel awkward or inadequate in group settings. For those who are isolated by circumstance, age, illness or anxiety. God of justice, through hands like ours, bring freedom and hope to all who are lonely and alone. We pray for those on the edges, who appear to belong but feel otherwise. For those who are shy and unsure how to build relationships. For those who fear they would be rejected if others knew the truth about them. For those who feel that no one cares and that no one would notice if they simply disappeared. God of justice, through hands like ours, bring acceptance and love for all people. <coughs> we pray for ourselves as we consider our membership of the church and specifically of this church. For those whose journey of faith is too new and too tentative to contemplate deeper commitment. For those who have grown comfortable with their level of commitment and are reluctant to change. For those whose membership is a heavy burden, carried it seems unaided, who are weary or disillusioned. God of justice, in our lives, individual and corporate, bring new life, new love, and new hope. For we offer our prayers in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat>